You know, we sometimes wonder about a sense of justice. It's an often thought-out question because it seems like the craziest crimes get committed at the expense of innocent people on all levels. And when they do and when there is no justice, it really bothers us. I was handed this by email. It came across on my desk. It's a true story. It happened in Charlotte, North Carolina. It says, a man purchased a box of very rare and expensive cigars, and he insured them, among other things, against fire. <laughs> Within a month, having smoked his entire stockpile of these great cigars, and without having made his first premium payment on the policy, he filed a claim against the insurance company. In the claim, he stated the cigars were lost, quote, in a, small, in a series of small fires. Close quote. The insurance company refused to pay, citing the obvious reason that the man had consumed these cigars in the normal fashion. The man sued and won. In delivering the ruling, the judge agreed with the insurance company that the claim was frivolous, but the judge stated nonetheless that the man held a policy from the company in which it had warranted these cigars were insurable and also guaranteed that it would insure them against fire without defining what it considered to be acceptable fire. And it was obligated to pay the claim. Rather than endure a lengthy and costly appeal process, the insurance company accepted the ruling and paid $15,000 to the man for the loss of rare cigars in these fires. Now here's the best part. After the man cashed the check, the insurance company had him arrested on 24 counts of arson. <laughs> with his own insurance claim, with his own insurance claim and the testimony from the previous case being used against him, the man was convicted of intentionally burning his insured property and was sentenced to 24 months in jail and a $24,000 fine. <laughs> Now, the worst crime ever committed was betrayal by Judas Iscariot against the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the worst. Yet, it is amazing to me still how some, even today, even some commentators are fond of excusing it. Well, he meant well. He was pushing Jesus into a corner for him to act in a very important way, it was betrayal. The very name Judas Iscariot sounds cold to us. It has become a universal synonym for a traitor. In fact, uh, some years ago in England, there was a practice at the beginning of Lent on Ash Wednesday to take a jack-o'-lantern type of figure and drag it through the streets and then shoot it to pieces calling the figure Judas. In Latin America, Spain, and Portugal, it is still a practice on Good Friday to take a wooden or straw figure, drag it through the streets, kick it, beat it, spit upon it, curse it, and they call it punishing Judas. Betrayal is one of the darkest words in our language. Everybody 
absolutely everybody hates a traitor. There's no room for it. Whether it's 2500 B.C. or 2001 A.D., whether you live in China, South America, or Hawaii, nobody likes a traitor. If you're an American soldier, if you're a British pacifist, if you're a Middle East dictator, you don't like a traitor. You want loyalty built in to those around you. It's part of a good relationship. Betrayal. Marriages break up because of it. Friendships are severed by it. Wars begin when it happens. Nations become unstable. And by the way, one-third of the angelic beings of heaven fell because of betrayal. We come to this portion of the story. The last night Jesus has with his disciples in the upper room, there's a change of tone here. It's like a dark cloud hovers over that meeting. Jesus has loved them, washed their feet, the supper has ended, and Jesus makes a prediction. It's a prediction about Judas Iscariot, a prediction about betrayal. But in the midst of the prediction, there is a paradox. There is even a, a, a light, you might say, in the midst of the dark tunnel called betrayal, as if something good is going to come out of it. And we're going to see that tonight. Uh, as we begin, let me just plant something in your mind. Did you know that the name Judas means praise the Lord? Oh, what he could have become had he surrendered. A man who praised the Lord, but he became one who betrayed his Lord. Let's look at our verses tonight, beginning in verse 18. Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. But that the scripture may be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread that when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Judas, Judas, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus had said to him, buy those things we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately. And notice that last sentence, and it was night. Back to verse 18, there is a prediction that Jesus makes. It is a prediction about his own betrayal. You see, this betrayal did not take Jesus off guard. He knew it well. 
He knew what was coming. In fact, he quotes a psalm familiar to them, Psalm 41, verse 9, when he says in verse 18, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. I can't say for sure, but I have a pretty good guess that when David wrote that psalm, he was speaking about Ahithophel. Most Bible commentators think that's who it was. Because Ahithophel, like Judas, was a loyal friend once to David. He was the counselor. He gave David advice. David could count on him. But when his son Absalom rebelled against David and forced the king out of Jerusalem, Ahithophel sided with Absalom. David left Jerusalem. His loyal friend who ate bread at David's table betrayed him. And so Jesus pulls this familiar psalm out because it fits so perfectly with Judas. Oh, by the way, after Ahithophel betrayed David, he went out and hung himself. Very similar. I want you to compare a couple of verses. Go back to verse 11 and follow the thinking here. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. Verse 18, I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen but that the scripture might be fulfilled, he who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. And then verse 26, Jesus answered and said, it is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. In other words, just like David, who sat and ate bread with a loyal friend who became a betrayer, I am eating with my friend who has become my betrayer. Now, the only difference between David and Jesus in this setting is that David didn't know about the betrayal until it happened. Jesus knew about it before it happened. I don't know if you've ever thought about how difficult it is to live with that. You know, uh, there is an attribute of God that we see in Jesus Christ. And we have noted it before, and we'll note it again. It's called omniscience. He knew everything. He knew what people were thinking about. And we often take great comfort that Jesus knows all that. He's in control. Uh, For example, at the well of Samaria, you remember the story? The woman was there and she was answering Jesus with these cutesy little answers. He was speaking about living water and she said, Great, bring it on so I don't have to come to this well every day. And then Jesus finally said, Go get your husband. And she said, I don't have a husband. And Jesus said, you're right, you've had five husbands in your lifetime and you're now living with a man who's not your husband. Whoa. That coming from a stranger or the time that Jesus was going to heal the paralytic and he was let down in front of him and Jesus said, son, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees around said, this is blasphemy. He can't say that, only God can forgive sins. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said unto him. Or what about the time in in Capernaum, the synagogue? There was a man who was lame. He had a withered hand. And the Pharisees were watching Jesus to see if Jesus would heal him. And it says, Jesus knew what they were thinking. And said to the man, stand up. 
And then he turned to those who were thinking that. And he said, let me ask you a question. Is it better to do evil or good on the Sabbath? To heal or to kill? And he nailed them. So he was omniscient. He knew all these things. But can you imagine living like that? Knowing in advance all of the bad things that are going to happen? If you knew your child would be in that accident, if you knew that your parent would come down with that disease, if you knew your friend would have done that to you, to live with that in advance. Listen, Jesus knew that Peter would deny him. He told him he would. It was Peter who said, oh no, I won't. He was in denial then. He knew that James and John would want to call fire down from heaven and smoke the Samaritans. And he knew that Judas would betray him. Just because Jesus knew all of that and was in control, clearly, it does not mean he was unaffected by it. I draw your attention down to verse 21. When Jesus had said these things, and notice this, he was troubled in spirit. Troubled in spirit. Tarasso is the term in the Greek language. It's a very strong word. It means to be agitated. It could be translated horror, anxiety, as well as agitation. Uh, sometimes we Christians make a mistake, I believe, and we emphasize so much the deity of Christ that we forget about his humanity. He was a man with two natures, fully God, fully man. But sometimes we just erase the humanity and figure that he was sort of untethered, unaffected by life, just above it all, cruise mode. He was deeply troubled in spirit. Remember, the writer of Hebrews concerning Jesus said he was a man who was in all points tempted like we are, yet without sin. In just a couple of hours, he would be sweating great drops of blood on the ground at Gethsemane. That's emotional tension. Doctors call it hematidrosis. That happens rarely when a person is at the highest possible intense level of stress. He was troubled by it. But he knew it all. He knew it was coming. He saw it coming. He predicted it coming. So, knowing that, what does he do? I want you to look at verse 18 again. There's a word that just sort of got me thinking this week. I do not speak concerning all of you. I know whom I have chosen. Now, in the context here, that's a word of sovereign knowledge, sovereign election. Uh, Jesus knew in advance those who would believe. He had made a choice. He knew that that, uh, Judas was, by all points an unbeliever. I know whom I have chosen. But it brings up something else. Jesus gave each of them the opportunity, unlike anybody else who ever lived, to follow him, to listen to him, and he did choose each one of them to follow him as a disciple for three and a half years. A great privilege. I want you to listen to the words of Luke that describe Jesus choosing these men at the beginning of his ministry now. Let's go back three and a half years. I'll read it to you. He went out to the mountain to pray, and he continued all night in prayer to God. And when it was day, he called his disciples to him, and from them he chose twelve whom he also named apostles. Simon, who he also called Peter, Andrew his brother, James, John, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, and Thomas, 
James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, Judas the son of James, and last on the list, Judas Iscariot, who also became a traitor. Now those are the men at this supper, all of them including the traitor. Question, question. If Jesus knew in advance what these guys were capable of and would do, and if he knew in advance that this Judas would become the betrayer, and if he prayed all night before he made the choice, why did he make that choice? Why did he choose Judas Iscariot? Why did he choose them? There's two reasons. Number one, Jesus says right here that the scripture might be fulfilled. And then he quotes that. My own dear friend has lifted up his heel against me. There's a second reason that applies to us. Because to love anyone, you have to be vulnerable. In other words, you have to take risks. Which means you're going to get hurt. I have the question framed in different ways, but it comes sort of the same way each time. It goes like this. Skip. How can I be certain that I can love someone and enter into a relationship of satisfying love without getting hurt? I put my arm on their shoulder, give them a little hug, and I say, it is impossible. To love means to be vulnerable, to take a risk, and somewhere along the line you're going to get hurt. There's going to be pain. When you stand at the altar, for example, and you exchange vows, husband and wife, there's going to be pain in that relationship. And listen to the vows. It's for better or for worse, not for better or for best, richer or for richest, until we live happily ever after. Even the vows implies there's going to be pain. Anybody can love the ideal person. The challenge is to love the real person. You know, Jesus could have said something at this point. He could have just sort of made the prediction, quoted the scripture, and then turned right to Judas and pointed him out and said, Judas Iscariot, you are the weakest link. Goodbye. <laughs> that would have been it. He would have been toast. He could have identified him right on the spot. But he doesn't do that. In fact, you will see in the coming verses what Jesus does to try to win his heart back even at this late moment. Now, here's my point. In your future, you're going to be betrayed, taken advantage of, hurt by someone. So what do you do? Hide, run, build a cocoon around yourself? A lot of people do. Now you know what you should do? Choose to love anyway. Anyway. There's nothing more satisfying than to love through tough times and betrayal. Do you know that? I found a story about a Christian husband. Uh, this was a guy who loved his wife and everything he thought was okay, but his wife was drinking and he didn't know why she was drinking. In fact, for several years she was drinking and it almost ruined the family. One evening she confessed to an affair that she had been having, she had 10 years prior, with her husband's best friend. He was betrayed. He was broken hearted. 
The kids were already bitter because of her alcoholism and she was drinking to cover up her guilt, she said. The family was almost destroyed and the idea of his friend acting in that way, betrayed by both. But he did say he remembered where the Lord taught us to pray and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And he asked the Lord to help him. Now he describes his own words in meeting his friend again after learning about the affair and deciding to forgive. Listen to him. He writes and he says, With a sob in my soul, I reached out my hand and gripped his, and for the first time in my life I knew what it was to forgive. I felt a tremendous sense of release as an unbearable weight of bitterness was lifted from my heart. This freedom enabled me to renew my love for my wife and to overcome the barrier that had arisen between us. When I said to her, I forgive you and will accept you just as I did when I pledged to love and cherish you unto death, the healing process began its wonderful work. You see, that is making a choice, choosing someone in the midst of betrayal, Jesus did that when three and a half years before this night, he said, I'm going to pick this guy. I know what he's going to do. I'm going to pick Peter. I know what he's going to do. All these guys, but, but I choose them anyway. Look now in verse 19 and 20. After the prediction comes what I think is a paradox of betrayal. Follow me. Now I tell you before it comes that when it does come to pass you may believe that I am He. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who receives whomever I send receives Me, and He who receives Me receives Him who sent Me. These are, I can only describe them as absolutely amazing words because it shows that Jesus wasn't so much concerned about His own loss at that point, but about what these disciples could gain because of it what they could gain. In verse 19, he implies that there'll be a greater trust in Jesus Christ himself as the Savior. You know, he didn't say, now I'm telling you these things so that you can find this traitor, take him out and beat the living daylights out of him. No, he says, I'm telling you this in advance so that when it happens, you remember that I said it and you'll believe I'm the one I claim to be. You'll trust me more. You go, oh yeah, he, he did know. He really is the Son of God. That's why. You know, it's the same thing God in the Old Testament said, principally through Isaiah the prophet in three places, where God says, listen, I'm God and I'll prove it. I'm going to say things that will happen. I'll tell you them in advance so that when they happen, you'll go, oh, he really is God. No, no other false God can do this. Listen to Isaiah 41. God says to the false gods, Declare to us things to come. Tell us what the future holds so that we may know that you are gods. In other words, put your prophecy where your mouth is. And then in Isaiah 48, I have declared former things from the beginning. They went forth from my mouth. Suddenly I did them and they came to pass. So often we think of prophecy as something to satisfy our curious minds about the future or to give us evidence that 
The fingerprint of God is here. And those are secondary. The primary purpose of prophecy is to lead us to God, to trust Him more, to revere Him more. And even as God the Father, three times in Isaiah, says, I'm going to tell you in advance these things so that when they happen, you'll trust me. Jesus says the same thing. In other words, the conclusion is the same. Jesus Christ is God. He is omniscient. And so that when it happens, we'll trust him more because of it. There's a second paradox, a second benefit to the disciples. And that is, and you can't miss this truth because he, it's it quoted in, in verse 18. He quotes a psalm. He's quoting the scripture. They would develop a greater trust in the Bible. Now, after the smoke would clear, after the death burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, when all of that dust settles, those disciples are going to be rethinking their Bibles. You'll see it in their letters. You'll see it in their sermons. They're going to go through the Old Testament and find those predictions and their fulfillment, and they're going to develop a whole new love for the Word of God. And here's my point. In these days of uncertainty and lawlessness... We should be driven more to trust the Scripture than ever before. We shouldn't say, I can't believe these things are happening. We should say, you know, I can believe these things are happening because Jesus said they would happen. The Bible predicted them long ago. For example, in Matthew 24, Jesus said, because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. In Matthew 10, he said, Father will be against son and daughter against mother and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. So when things get that bad, we can go, yeah, the Bible said they would. Doesn't make it easier, but it makes me trust the Bible more. Parents, let me ask you this question. What are you passing on to your children in these days of warfare and uncertainty? See, a lot of parents think that they will serve their children well if they give them a good bank account, make them financially stable. But as we've seen the last couple weeks, the stock market can just lose everything, just fall through the floor like that. Or a child could squander it just as easily. Others think, well, if I give my kids the best education, they'll be ready for the future. Well, that's all good, but make sure you plant the Word of God, deep in their hearts so that in times of trouble, they'll go back to it. And they will. And they will. John Newton was six years old when his parents died. He was six years old, raised in a Christian home. His mother taught him the Word of God. He memorized it. Then his parents died. Ruined him. He was raised by unbelieving relatives. They didn't care about the Bible. He didn't read it after that. He joined the British Navy as a young man, served for a while because he loved the sea, went AWOL, went to Africa, got involved in the slave trade for years. After all that was over, he was sailing back to England. The ship was in a storm. He was trying to get water out of the boat. They thought the boat was going to sink It was before he thought he was going to die and John Newton cried out to the God he remembered as a six-year-old and the scriptures his mother taught him came to mind once again. 
And it was as if the Holy Spirit showed him the reason that those scriptures were memorized as a young child. They fit his perfect situation. Well, he gave his life to Christ. He went back to England, became a statesman, and he wrote an interesting song called Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound That Saves a Wretch Like Me. The Word of God in difficult times is so important. And John Newton learned that. There's a, a third part of this paradox, a third benefit that this betrayal of Judas will have for the remaining disciples, and that is a greater chance for their service. If you look at verse 20 with me, uh, it seems like it doesn't fit, honestly. As you read the context of this, it seems absolutely disconnected from what Jesus just said and what he says after it. He's talking about serving. He's talking about betrayal. And then he says, Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me. And he who receives me receives him who sent me. But if you think about it, it does fit perfectly. Because in the previous verses, Jesus washed their feet and said, Serve one another, love one another, just like I've done to you. Then he predicts betrayal. Somebody in this room is going to betray me. How would that make the disciples feel? Probably utterly discouraged. They probably thought, if somebody in this room among your own disciples can betray you, could do that, then, then maybe ultimately we're all going to fail. And Jesus would say, oh no. Oh no. One will betray me. The rest are my ambassadors. So much so that when you go out in my name, and you will, it will be for those who receive your testimony as if they receive Jesus Christ himself. There's an important lesson to be learned there. The betrayal of one person, the, the bad example of one person who claimed to be a Christian husband or a Christian leader shouldn't rock your world and cause you to do the same thing. It should actually intensify your service for the Lord. Keep you going longer, working harder. There's a lot of, a lot of betrayal out there. A lot of betrayal in so-called Christian churches. I think a lot of churches have sold out. The Gallup organization back in two, well, two years ago put out a report called it Surveying the Religious Landscape they reported 39% of Americans describe themselves as born-again evangelicals. Not even 40%. 39% say they're born-again evangelical Christians. That group was polled, 39% of the born-again Christians, those who said they were born-again. They were polled, and of those, 20% believe in reincarnation. These are the born-again Christians. 26% adhere to astrology, and 33% are pro-choice. The Barna organization did a follow-up poll and discovered 45% believe that if people are good enough, they will earn a place in heaven. And 34% say Jesus committed sins like other people, and 35% say Jesus had no physical resurrection from the dead. Betrayal of the core values of our faith. You see it in seminaries. I had a friend who went to seminary. It undid him. 
he graduated from seminary and gave me all of his books. He said, I don't even know if I believe in Jesus anymore. That's what they taught me in seminary. You know what that did to me? It didn't make me think, well, I'm going to abandon the faith. It made me want to work harder, preach harder, reach more people than ever before. And that's the, that's the upside of this for the disciple. In the midst of betrayals, Jesus is saying, I still have my ambassadors. J. Oswald Sanders said, A man may betray Jesus by speaking too many words. That's Judas. A man may also betray Jesus by keeping his mouth shut. And therein lies the hope. Jesus said, You won't. You're going to go out in my name. I'm going to close with a final point. Not only the prediction of betrayal, we've seen that. The paradox of the betrayal, we've seen that. But what I call the proximity of the betrayer. There is an arrangement at this supper I want you to notice. Verse 21. When Jesus said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of the disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. Having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. We get insight into the seating arrangement at the Last Supper. I know I mentioned last week Leonardo da Vinci's The Last Supper painting. It hangs in Milan, Italy. And uh, it does, has done us a disservice because, first of all, it shows everybody sitting in a chair at a table facing in one direction for the artist or the, the photographer, if it was these days. You know, one of those kind of things. <laughs> and as I mentioned, it wasn't that way at all. They were around a horseshoe table called a triclinium, They were leaning on the left side with the right arm free. The right arm, they could take food and dip it and eat it. Because they were leaning more to the left, the head was in the bosom or toward the chest of the person at their left-hand side. John was sitting at Jesus' right-hand side. Now, Peter wasn't. Peter was far enough to motion. I find that interesting because if Peter was the first pope, he's nowhere near the the chief places at the Last Supper. He's far enough away to have to motion. Now, John isn't mentioned. He wrote the book. Notice it says John at the top of the page. He's the author. But he doesn't identify himself at the Supper as John. But I like this. The one who Jesus loved. I think that's just classic. You know, he could have said, and I was there, but... Uh, There was Peter and there was the other guys and Judas, but the one that Jesus loved, who was next to him, at his right-hand side, you know, he wanted to have the chief place in the kingdom, and at least he's here at the Last Supper. Um, He's close enough to lean into the breast of Jesus and turn back and talk to him. That's John, very close to the heart of Jesus. Um, All Jesus would have to do By the way, Peter's going, ask him who? John, ask him who? Again, classic Peter. Because remember, Peter's the guy who likes to chop ears off of people. 
If he would have found out who it was, he would have had Judas in a headlock instantly. He would have just been all over him. So he just tells John. Where was Judas sitting? Verse 26. He said, The one I give a piece of bread to, and having dipped it, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. At the right of Jesus was John. At the left of Jesus was Judas Iscariot. Now listen carefully. The left seat in a supper was the place of highest honor. It was specially selected by the host himself. The host would take a piece of bread and pass it to the one on the left. That was customary. And then it would be passed to all the others. So can, can you see the configuration? John is leaning toward Jesus. Jesus is leaning toward Judas. It's as if before the supper, it must have, Jesus went up to Judas and said, Judas, I want you to sit in the place of honor tonight. I want you to sit in my left-hand side, right next to me. My head will be leaning close to you, your body. You know, Jesus was reaching out to Judas up until the very end, trying to love him and trying to win him. Just inches away was Jesus' head from Judas's heart. And that's what Jesus wanted all along was his heart. You can be in Jesus' company all day long, but does he have your heart? Are you more like John tonight, leaning toward Jesus, or like Judas leaning away from Jesus? The last verse, having received the piece of bread, they went out immediately. This is haunting to me, and it was night. Now, we know that was the time of day. It was the nighttime. The sun had set. But if you know anything about John's gospel, you know that light and darkness are important metaphors. How does John begin his letter, his book of John? He says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. He mentions of all the gospel writers that Jesus said in John 8, I am the light of the world. He who believes in me will not walk in darkness. So Jesus is seen as light. It speaks of, of purity and righteousness. So to leave Jesus' presence, metaphorically, is to go out into darkness. And it was night. What about you? Is darkness creeping in on your life? Are you leaning more toward darkness, going further away from Christ? Or are you leaning closer to Christ and walking in the light? I alluded to it. I alluded that a place of honor at the left-hand side included the dipping of the bread and giving it to the man who sat there. You know that eating in the Middle East was considered a, a form of, of intimate friendship. You know that already. Uh, to eat with someone was to become one with them because the same bread that nourishes me nourishes you and it becomes a part of my body eventually, a part of your body eventually. Thus, we eventually become a part of each other. That's why Jesus said, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And if anyone will open the door, I will come in and sup with him and he with me. Jesus was knocking at the door of Judas's heart. Judas, friend, if you'll still be my friend, you don't have to do this. Sit at this place of honor. Be close to me. I want to be close to your heart. Here's my friendship. Here's my forgiveness. But Judas went out, and it was night. 
In the days of George Washington was a man by the name of Peter Miller. He was a minister. Peter Miller, a great Christian, the story says, had an enemy who hated him because he was a Christian, would make fun of Peter Miller, would shout names at Peter Miller, would go out of his way to taunt Peter Miller. Well, this man eventually was caught for treason and was sentenced to death. Peter Miller walked 60 miles to plea to General George Washington to let that man go free. And Washington looked at Miller and said, Oh, so you want me to let your friend go? You walk 60 miles to, to plead for your friend. He says, My friend? He's been the worst enemy my whole life. Washington said, You walked 60 miles to let your enemy go free? Oh, that puts it in a different light and granted him the pardon. Peter Miller rushed to the scaffold where this enemy of his was about to be hung. And when this man saw Peter Miller, he said, Oh, Peter Miller has come to take vengeance on his enemy. Just then Peter Miller held up the pardon that he had pleaded for, and the man was set free. Judas, here's your pardon. You don't have to do this. You don't have to do this. Even now, you can be forgiven. Peter went out, and it was night. The last several weeks, well, let me reframe that. The last several years, we have seen a lot of people come to Christ here. We give people an opportunity every Saturday just about or Sunday morning, and we see a lot of people make decisions for Christ. But you know, I also meet people who will tell me, I have been here many years and I didn't receive Christ until last week or a month ago or today. I've listened to your messages and I walked out. And he said, and every time it was easier and easier to listen to your message and, and not respond to Christ. It could be that the Lord has brought you here tonight for such a time as this. Because you're leaning toward darkness. You're away from the heart of Jesus and he's trying to draw you in. And his hand would be out to you. The pardon would be out to you. And you can receive it, or you can immediately go out into the night away from Him. Lord, we pray just now. We pray, Lord, for those of us who have read this Scripture, and we've seen that Jesus, knowing all things in advance, chose these guys, including Judas, to follow Him for three and a half years. That's true love. Not loving the ideal, but the real person. We see, Lord, that even in difficult times, we as believers can trust you more, trust your word more, and serve you in a greater capacity than ever before. Lord, we also see that you can be very close to Jesus, where his head is touching your own heart, yet your heart be really unaffected. And you can walk away. And it's been done many times before as people have rejected Christ throughout the ages and have gone out into the night. One day, the curtain of their life will be over. There won't be any more chances left. Lord, I pray that those who have come tonight who don't personally know Jesus Christ as their Master and Savior would with a tender and broken heart
say yes to you. Receive your pardon. Receive forgiveness. Not the way of Judas who walked a hill to a tree and hung himself, but the way of Jesus who walked to a hill to a tree to pay for our sins. And so, Lord, we pray that as you move among us tonight, you would draw people who don't personally know Jesus or who have walked away from him to bring them back to your side. In Jesus' name, amen. In Jesus' name, amen.